Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. So we're in Luke chapter 11. Uh, We are going to pick up where we left off. Um, in verse 33, so we're kind of at the second part of the chapter. Um, Because we don't have much left of the chapter, I think context is a big deal here. Um, Jesus has been showing the disciples the way and how to live, and he has been for a few chapters. Um, I think it's like to get a little context on this, um, I was thinking of like how some of the chosen episodes, you're following the storyline and then you watch the next episode, TV shows will do this, and they start with a completely different set of characters and just a new like vignette story at the beginning. Um, I think it might be good to kind of like get that sense of like where we're at in the story. Jesus has been modeling everything he asks his followers to do. And he, then he says, follow me, do what I'm doing. In chapter 951, he sets his face to Jerusalem. And he hasn't budged on that. Like, there's a resolve about the tone of what he's doing and how he's doing it. And you've noticed these teachings just come one on top of the other, and they link to each other. And there is a a progressive thought that's going on. Luke 9.51, if you could just turn back a chapter and, and note that that verse... Now it came to pass, there was a hinge point there in chapter 9, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That fulfills a prophetic text in Isaiah 50, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I shall not be confounded, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. So there is a process as he's dealing with his adversaries, that he is just, he's set on it, and it doesn't matter what his adversaries say or do. He's headed towards this path. And he knows that he's not going to be ashamed in it, and he's teaching his disciples everything to do in the battleground that is life. In chapter 11, he teaches them to pray. Then he teaches them to be persistent in the prayer. The work of the Christian is prayer, and Jesus' words are how to do that. Then we see this the casting out of an unclean spirit or a demon. Jesus is here to scatter evil in chapter 11, verse 23. There is, he's teaching, again, he's everything he does, he does first, and then he tells his followers to do the same. And in the same way, we're supposed to scatter evil everywhere we go. How do you do that? How do you scatter evil? And, and I think you see these Hollywood images of demon out and all this sort of thing starts to happen, but it's not what you see in the scriptures. You see Jesus redirecting unclean spirits. Sometimes he casts them out. Sometimes he redirects them. Sometimes he has conversations with them, right? And they say, we'll leave, but can we go into the pigs? Sure, go into the pigs. And he'll have these the, the thing, but he warns that cleansing and casting out demons is simply inviting more trouble if we don't fill that void. So that battleground is, is there has to be something positive that we put forth too. Right? So in Luke 11, 24, just as a review, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I'll return to my house from which I came. I'm just going to go back to the place that I got kicked out of. And when he comes, he finds it swept up and put in order because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's the first act on a repentant soul's life is things start to get put back in order. 
but getting put in order isn't growing in the faith either, right? So you can meet somebody and they say, I accept Jesus, and they give up a lot of the garbage that's destroying them. <clears throat> but if they don't replace the garbage, eventually there's going to be spirits that come back to that clean space, right? Then he goes out and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, as they enter and dwell there, the last state of that man being worse than the first. So the question has to be, as we read these passages in chapter 11, what do we fill the house with? We don't just put things in order. Christianity isn't just about a, a life path that we have a more orderly, successful life. There has to be something more than that. So how do we occupy our lives? Verse 28, you fill it with the word. And this is the context where we're coming up on our, our woe passages here. Where Jesus is going to rise and Gentiles will repent. He talks about the Queen of Sheba and like Nineveh, both of them Gentiles. If the Jewish people don't fill their lives with the word, especially the word of God, and if Jesus is God, the words of Jesus, there's going to be worse coming their way. So we fill our house with the word, we keep it, we stand firm. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistles. First, Second Timothy, Second Thessalonians 2.15. We are supposed to stand fast. We're supposed to set our faces like flint, just like our Lord did as he went to Jerusalem. That there are certain things in our life we don't bend on. And we watch out for things that cause compromise. So we pray, we learn the word, we fill with the word, we stand fast in the word. Verse 33, we let it shine. Continuing from this, there's the shining element of stuff. How do we shine? And then we get to our verses in verse 33. Nobody, when he's lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp is the body of the eye, therefore when your eye is good, the whole body's full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body's full of darkness. Therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light. And when, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So there are, the context here is, you don't have to worry about demons returning to your life if you're filling your life with light. And there's no part darkness to what you're putting into your life. They say garbage in, garbage out. The opposite's true too. Light in, light out. And it shines that way. So the idea of verse 33, no one is true. There, this is true of all people. It's not conditional to his disciples. It's any group of people trying to walk through life. And it says, when he's lit a lamp, what's a lamp? So you can try to decode lamp, right? They have lamps in their houses. They have lamps in the temple, the menorah with the different lamps on it. So lamps are strong imagery, but we can actually just go to the word of God. In Psalm 119, 105, we get the interpretation. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is the light and the life. It's why we have it. It's why God's maintained it through thousands of years. So if the word of God is my lamp, and the word of God is Jesus, and he's the light of the world. Uh, according to John, the word and Jesus Christ are the things we fill our life with. Now, that sounds like really theoretical, but there's a practicality to what's going on here, which is, I think, where Luke's going to take us to. Why would you put a light in a secret place? The Greek for the word secret place in verse 33, or uh, where is it? What verse is that? 
Oh, verse 33. Is actually a tomb, which is an interesting thing there. Why would, when you've lit a lamp, you wouldn't put it in a tomb. So the word secret place there is a place where you've sealed the tomb and then what's inside remains secret, which is usually that idea. When the lights come, it doesn't stay in a tomb. It's going to come out of that tomb. And remember, Jesus has set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, which means a cross, which means a tomb. They're going to kill him. Those who come. I think this is, again, we keep coming across some of these ideas. Anyone that encounters you is those that come into your life. Anyone you deal with in a given day. Anyone you're dropping things off for, anyone that comes into your classroom, anyone that shows up in your life, anyone you phone call or video conference with, they should know that there's a certain light in you, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God just permeates who you are, how you communicate, and what you think. Some of them might think that you're displaying a haughtiness or a a holier-than-thou attitude, but what you're really explaining is just the joy of the Lord. And to be happy in today's world that is messed up People will accuse you of things. So Jesus goes there first. He goes out and he's sharing the light of the world. He's sharing the truth of the word of God. And they say that he's got Beelzebub in him. He can cast out demons. And they're saying, well, you cast out demons because you're the Lord of demons. What a ridiculous thing. How do you meet Jesus and think he's evil? All he's done in his entire ministry is heal people, help people, and encourage people. He's been kind. But that is a threat to people that don't have kindness in their heart. When they're dark, they're blinded by that darkness. So the idea is that we don't, we, the whole purpose of the word of God in our life is so that people can see it. The whole purpose of Israel is so that the world could see God through the, the works of Israel. The whole purpose of God in your life is so that people can see your life. And this is why it's, 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 it's terrifying when I think of my first years as a believer, how I did this dance between wanting things that the world had and, and kind of trying to find this compromise balance between them. What a waste of time because I was taking part darkness and part light in my life. And when you do that, it's not something that's going to shine out because you're putting darkness in with it. And so you get this, this, this idea of listening, reading, studying the word sets a fire inside of us and a lamp that's inside of us. And we're made for that. As human beings, we're designed to carry God's word and shine it. Like you think of an object and what it's meant to do and the purpose that it has. The purpose we have is to take God's word in and then let it shine out through our gifts and talents. Just as Jesus was asked for miracles and signs, wonders, this is also part of the answer to that question. Remember, they said, show us signs. And part of the sign is what's coming out of Jesus. Like, they just don't see it. The wonder is that he sees the world through the lens of the word of God, and then Jesus acts accordingly, as we should be following him and doing that. Then verse 35, the lamp is the body, the lamp of the body is the eye. This is an interesting Like, spend some time thinking about this. A bad eye means you're blind, but there's another thing that your eye does for you. It doesn't just provide sight. It also provides a detection of light that's outside of you. Even blind people can often detect warmth or light and not warmth or light. That sets our REM and our sleep cycles. So we wake up, we sleep longer in the winter, we sleep less time in the summer. I don't know what happens along the equator, but for the eye to go bad means you lose more than just your ability to perceive and see. You also lose your ability to receive light. And that's what the lamp is. The word of God, of the word of God for the body is like your eye. 
Your, the word of God helps you to see things. It also helps you to receive light. So the more we study the word, the more we understand intellectually, the more we change spiritually too. It changes our spiritual cycles. When we wake up, when we go to bed, when we're on fire, when we're, when we're resting and find the peace of the Lord, there is a degree to which our eye is an organ of our body that represents how we receive the word and how we take it in. So he's saying you should be able to look at Jesus and see light. Your eye guides that. It's what you see. And what we choose to look at is going to be what we take in. Does this make sense? Like I've really, I've spent a lot of time on this. So if I get too heady, just like delete me or fast forward me. We choose what to look at, either the cross of Jesus or the things of this world. And in that choice, we fill our lives with something. We fill our hearts and our minds with something. And, I, and, and honestly, like there's so much going on with Israel right now. That I could fill my heart with what's going on over there and understand it. There's things that go on with our family members. Like we could fill our heart with the drama of family members that we have. And we do that because we care about them. But in doing that, those things should come second to filling our heart with the word of God and with Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the solution to both of the other problems that are out there. Jesus is trying to give us this image of the eye, what we take in, what we look at, how we direct our lives is going to affect the kind of light we take in. When your eye is good, the word good there in the Greek is to be properly folded or unified or single. If your eye is single-minded, there's a benefit to that. And that benefit is there. It, 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 it pervades everything. In Numbers 21.9, we got this Old Testament lesson. Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent, serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. They had literally snakes all over the ground biting their feet. And Moses' instruction was, turn away from those things and look at the serpent on the cross. Well, on the, look at the sin being killed on the cross. And, and don't look down at your feet. Like, I don't know about you, but if there's a spider in the room, that's where my eyes go. If there's a snake crawling across the room, everybody in this room would forget about the teaching of the word and we'd be looking at the snake. Everything in our flesh wants to look at the stuff that's going to bite us because that's our instinct. And Moses tells them to do the opposite. A good eye allows light in and you become full of light. A good heart allows spiritual light in. A bad eye can't see light no matter how bright it is or how glorious God is. No matter how amazing Jesus is, people with darkness in their heart can't see him. They don't get it. John 3.19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and the men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's condemnation. If you know Jesus, you're held accountable to that. So people love sinning and they don't want to be in the light. So their eye registers change and they take in what they want. If you come to the spiritual truth with an unwillingness to see or a divided, a not unified eye, you're lost and you can't see anything. And we get into that language of blindness. Verse 35 says, take heed, pay attention to this. All the lessons we've got about how to walk in our faith, Jesus gives us this little warning here. Take heed of this. Pay attention to this. If you want to live your life for Jesus, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. That almost sounds like a weird, mysterious, like puzzle sentence. 
but in light, in the context of everything he's teaching and these people that are seeing Jesus cast out demons and they, they accuse him of Beelzebub or they want to see more signs and miracles, his response to that is, you have to look in your heart. If you don't see Jesus and see goodness there, something's wrong with you. Now, if you're here studying the word of God, my guess is you're already on board with Jesus. But there's a take heed here, right? To be in darkness is either to not have light or be blind. Either the light is shut off or you're blind. And as we're dealing with non-Christians, think about this for a second. The inability to see light. We know that there is light, so it's not option one. God is there. He's persistent. He's, he's ready for anyone that wants to seek him. The only alternative then is blindness. The eye doesn't work. So the idea of taking heed to this problem is that there is a light that we can heed and we have to examine our own life. When we get into conflicts or discussions about the faith, whether or not Jesus is good or bad, whether or not there is, whether or not Jesus is authentic and real and we can trust the scriptures, instead of debating the scriptures, we can evaluate the heart. What is it that makes that person resistant to Jesus Christ? What's the source of the darkness and the blindness? And, I, and honestly, I think this makes us more effective when we encourage people to move towards Jesus Christ. Don't get into the debates. Jesus doesn't want to debate them about whether or not he's from Beelzebub or not, whether or not Jesus is good or not. We actually live in a world where people think Christianity is bad. But he goes instead towards what's in their heart and what's wrong with their heart. And in the next section with the woes, he's pointing out exactly what the darkness is in their hearts. He's making full-on accusations of what's going on. And if we can't see light, we might actually think that darkness is light, right? Darkness is the absence of light. It's nothing. And if we can't see the light, we're kidding ourselves in what we're perceiving and what we're doing. The idea that there is a light which is in you is, is not darkness. Again, this isn't like a Disney thing, like look deeply for the light that's in you. The idea is that you have had unclean spirits cast out, context, that you've got the word of God going into your heart, and that word of God is not from you or in, inherent to you. It's what you've put there. The light that's in you in context is the word of God that you've taken in. What parts of the Bible you understand. Jesus is saying that there, are, that, that there is an illumination that happens there. And these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, they suffer from intellectual pride. It's blocking their ability to see Jesus. Verse 36 if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So when God's word shines, everything gets clearer. Everything makes more sense. It's impossible to tell somebody that we're, that's got a bunch of sin in their life. It's impossible to explain to them how joyful it is to be without sin. Right? And again, I'll come back to that idea. The older I get, the less I sin, but the more I realize how sinful I am. My character is flawed, but I'm not going to continue to do the acts that disgrace my God. I'm going to lift up my God as much as I can, knowing that I need every bit of his forgiveness because my character is sinful. At the very least, I cannot continue to do sinful things and carry those out. So Jesus has shown off everything and you still have these leaders that don't accept him. This also leads us into Jesus addressing his accusers and his doubters. He turns on them directly. 
right? And this is the throwdown, right? They're all following a thing that they think is light themselves, but and they don't know what light is. So remember, his face is set like flint. He is set, there is a direction, and there are scribes and Pharisees standing in his way. And he's about to throw down with them because it's time to deal with that doubt and that anger. And he asks us to set our face towards the cross. And there are moments and times when you have to just address people's sin and talk about it and rebuke it and say, you can't keep doing this. It has to end. So verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. First of all, I want to, I seem to be picking these out of Luke. Notice the, as he spoke, he's interrupted. And there, there is a, a lack of courtesy and just deference that these Pharisees have. And they, in that interrupting of Jesus, the only other folks that have interrupted Jesus in the entire gospel of Luke are unclean spirits and demons. Which says to say that these people that have cleaned out their house may have worse than the original unclean spirits filling their life right now. These scribes and Pharisees may have more demonic, insidious, deceptive spirits about them because they're acting like a demon in the fact that they're interrupting the word of God. Do you see what I'm saying there? Like, so here's, demons aren't necessarily like the exorcist where your face turns white and you start cutting yourself and all that nonsense. Sometimes it looks like a Pharisee, well-cleaned, well-groomed, nice clothes, all good to go, absolutely standing in the way of the work of Jesus and interrupting the teaching of Jesus, and which means God's word isn't going out because of these people. The accusations, the demand for miracles, those are also anti-Christ spirits coming up against the work of God. And as Christians, if we're supposed to follow Jesus, let's get better at recognizing them. So as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Hey, come over to my house to eat. Sometimes these kinds of spirits are actually really like, it's time to go hang out. Let's spend time together chewing up Jesus's time. But remember, and again, this is context, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. So if he is committed and God's called him towards Jerusalem to detour from that and go out to eat with this dude, very graceful of Jesus to do that. But he has to deal with these people. So he accepts the invitation. I think that's something to say about Jesus. They hate him, but he apparently doesn't hate back. And he's willing to go to their house, even though they clearly wouldn't be willing to come to his. So he went in, he sat down to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. He doesn't wash his hands, right? And so they're finding fault in the littlest of things. But actually, this isn't that little. The, uh, the marveling there is that kind of this aghast, like, ah, uh, don't even know what to say. And the reason that's the case is because Pharisees had this long ritual. I think I talked about this back in Matthew. They would go to the sink, they'd have their fingers towards heaven and their wrists towards the bottom. They'd get one half eggshell of water to pour over and then they would use their palms to wash every surface of their hands all the way around. It wasn't just like washing your hands to stay clean so you're not eating germs. It was a ritualistic practice. Some of the Pharisees in the first centuries would do this between courses of the meal so as not to corrupt themselves. They would keep their outsides spotless and clean, no food whatsoever. This is like when I get barbecue wings at the restaurant, my hands are too sticky to hold the fork, but I'm just doing that to de-stickify. The Pharisees were doing this for spiritual cleanliness 
And they created all these ornate things. And you'd say, where's the Old Testament reference to that? And I'd say, there is none. This is all tradition that they've built up. So Jesus doesn't go with their traditions. He ignores the official process and he moves forward. So this being marveled that he had not first washed before dinner, the word washed there is more of a proper noun. He hadn't done the ceremonial washings. So the Pharisee, this in this way, because he's so concerned with the washings, he's not able to have a friendly dinner with God Almighty. As believers, just think of the darkness that that is. So worried about the ornate human practices, you can't even understand the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. If he's a light, and he is, then what's to become of religious elites and clubs that don't understand Jesus at Jesus' own level, that have to add some sort of ceremony around getting to hang out with Jesus? And you just think of the Christian church over 2,000 years, how many wings of it have added ceremony to encountering Jesus Christ. And, and, and this is a kind of darkness that Jesus isn't going to let go. So they complain about him washing his, the hands, and then verse 39, then the Lord said. Now, it's not Jesus. Notice how that switches with Luke. This isn't just incarnate Jesus talking. This is the Lord said to him. So he's speaking in a prophetic voice and he takes it on. Um, and the way he talks semantically is actually in the format of the prophets. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Now you Pharisees. <laughs> so it's plural. When the one Pharisee invited him over for dinner, it sounds like there's more than one Pharisee waiting for him. They're trying to get him away from his people so they can attack him. Right? So he's in a room full of Pharisees. There's also scribes in the room we'll see later. And there's also lawyers in the room we're going to see later. This is a full room he goes into. Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. They have a light in them that's actually darkness. We're supposed to take heed to this. And now we get to see what it looks like. Foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms to such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Jesus takes this aghast Pharisee and he rebukes him. He goes into someone's house and calls and accuses them of greed and wickedness and even worse, verse 4, a foolish. Foolish is like, if you read the Old Testament, foolish is the worst possible condition of humanity. To be foolish is to not recognize God. So he judges that their behavior is wrong. Now you can look at Jesus and say, oh, he's legalistic. He's telling other people what to do. But actually it's the legalism that causes the Pharisee to have a problem with Jesus. The inhospitality is the opposite of what Jesus taught his disciples. When you go into somebody's home, eat what they serve. So the fact that, that they're being inhospitable, that they're not grateful to have people in their house and to serve them. This highlights the need. And he talks about inside, outside, like he just got done talking about what's inside is should be light. What's inside these guys is not hospitality. It's not kindness. It's not grace. It's not mercy. It's an expectation that other people act the way I think they should act. Isn't that the sin that's in all of our hearts? An expectation that people around us should act the way we think they should act? but rather give alms. He gives them an alternative. Instead of trying to look righteous, how about you live righteous? You look really fancy. You got clean cups and dishes. But how about, verse 41, you give alms. Alms were to give to poor people or people that couldn't provide for themselves. 
And he's saying giving alms would be fancier than hand washing. I'm guessing he knows darn well none of these people give to the poor. Ever. And then in verse 40, he lays out foolishness. <laughs> okay, at this point, the Pharisees and Jesus aren't friends anymore, right? If you have intellectual pride and somebody calls you foolish, there's a problem with that, right? If you start questioning people's thinking. So Jesus has been responding to their challenges. He's been avoiding their hostility. He's been going around Samaria, but now they blaspheme his light, his word, and it's on. Like, no, you can't cross that line. So moreover, they have the son of God in their house and they're worried about hand washing. Let's get the sense of what's going on here. So Jesus is done mincing word with fools and he's going to let them have it. And then we get the woes. So woes, Jesus is still teaching. Um, you could read a tone of anger or irritation here, justifiably. You could also read a tone of loving warning, like disappointment. Man, woe to you guys. But, it, you know, realistically, it could just be, man, woe to you who cross these lines you cross so easily. But the woe to you language is used in the Old Testament by Moses, Samuel, Job, David, Solomon, Isaiah 22 times, Jeremiah 12 times, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. You think the Pharisees would recognize this language? He's speaking Old Testament to them. It's like he pulled out his King James and he started talking that way. Right? They, he, he speaks in a language they fully recognize from their scriptures. So to say woe to you is not common language in the first century. It's religious language. So they talk about religious hand washing. He brings religious word of God into the play. If what's in you is the word of God, what comes out of you is the word of God. And Jesus is full of light and what comes out of him, even in a conflict, is the word of God. And he starts using that language. Proverbs twenty two fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Jesus brings out the rod, right? It's time to hear it. So he brings out this prophetic voice and he uses it against the Pharisees. We'll start with the first woe, verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue all other manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God, those you ought to have done without leaving others undone. What does it mean to tithe mint? <laughs> um, again, so I'm so thankful for the people that researched all this, and I can just look it up and share it with you. The Pharisees would grow gardens in their backyard, and then they would count out every 10 of every item. So with mint, there would be mint seeds that got used. They would count out 10 mint seeds and take one and put it in a little box to bring to the temple. So they were legal. They had created legalism around their first fruits. And there's nothing wrong with tithing, tithing and generosity. Honestly, tithing is commanded by the Bible. But to go and count the seeds of your mint plant is a bit extreme. Right? And to do that, and so you tithe mint. Look at how exacting you are when it comes to your tithing. And yet you pass by justice and the love of God. And he just got done telling, telling them to give to the poor. So there's, there's tithing and then there's offerings. We can think it's important that others know how holy we are because the reason he knows that they count out mint is not a miracle. They made a scene of it. Remember the thing with the woman? And he's like, look at that woman given what she has. Look at this guy making a big show of what he gives. What we give to God should be quiet and private. And the fact that they made a show of it, it's not the tithing that's wrong, it's how they did the tithing that's wrong. 
Look at me. I'm putting things in the love box, and let me show you what I got in my hand while I do it. You know, this is what I'm giving to the Lord. So the love of God here is important, but it's fair that there's justice and that we love them. There should be justice and love. You're so concerned about tithing your mint, but you don't know how to welcome somebody into your house. By the way, Jesus is a carpenter by trade. Why would they expect him to do pharisaical hand washings? Why? Why would they put that burden on a, on a carpenter's son? Amazing what they're doing. What they're not doing is showing what love looks like. Pharisees, Pharisees should be showing love. When you meet one, they should be somebody willing to love, willing to guide, to teach. So these people are good at the form, but not good at, the, at, the, at existing in such a way. Um, they want other people to know how good they are, but they forget to be loving and justice with them. So they're good at tests, but they're not able to think, right? They're good at the, the drills, but they're not able to perform in a battle. They're good at theory, but they neglect practice. They're good at arguments, but they're unable to make a friend. Woe to you. Woe to you if that defines your character at any level. That's darkness you got to get out of your heart. To know everything about Jesus and prophecy and revelation, to have studied the entire word of God, but not actually care about anybody in your fellowship and be a host and to be kind and to be loving. Whoa. Then verse 43, here's another one. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Nobody has the best seat today, so nobody. I, I'm guessing this isn't a problem for anybody because I think the sofa is the best seat. It's just me. But the best seat for the synagogues, again, I, I appreciate the people that do this research. Synagogues were set up in a U shape or an O shape where the, the teacher would sit here, but there'd be a circle of people around the teacher. And whoever got to sit to the left or the right of the teacher was often, often a traveling dignitary or whoever was the highest level Pharisee at the synagogue. So they might not be teaching that week, but it would be clear who the biggest honcho was in the room by where they were seated. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do? Take the seat in the back corner of the room where nobody can see you and let people promote you if they want to. But be humble and don't assume the best seat in the house. So when he says you love the best seats in the synagogue, they love being seen. They love being special people. They love having titles. They love being prominent. They're deceived into thinking that their ranking makes them closer to God than anything else. Jesus tells us to call each other brothers and sisters. We're all children of God. And even though one person exercises this gift and another person does this gift, we are equals in the eyes of God. And I think the church has largely done an okay job of, of continuing to refresh that attitude because of this teaching. Degrees, titles, how we dress, the language we use, the seats we sit in are all things that humans do to say, I'm more important than other people. And we absolutely embrace that in every area of life. Greetings in the marketplaces. There's another thing. The best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. To go into the marketplace, a Pharisee would walk into the marketplace and everybody would say, hello, Mr. Pharisee. How are you? Ooh, look, it's Pharisee so-and-so. And they'd all greet them and say hello. There is a thrill to being famous, being seen, being known. I got to tell you, the first time I really experienced that kind of pride is I went to a conference as a keynote speaker. And everywhere you go, people would treat you different. You'd be in the elevator and they'd be like, it's the keynote hello, Mr. Keynote, and then they'd say something and, and you felt for him because it's like, I know exactly what you feel. You're starstruck. And, but there's this feeling like, but yeah, but I'm the star. 
Look at how great I am. Man, reject that. Walk away from it. Be careful for that woe in your heart, for that darkness that's in your heart where you you like being seen and you like the greetings in the marketplaces. If that's going on in your heart, you're not giving glory to God. You're not turning that fame into glory for the king. And there's a darkness in you and you're putting your trust in it. If you let that be your light, being famous, it's actually a darkness and a blindness. You can't see God if you're only seeing yourself. Then 44, it just keeps coming, you guys. I've told you this was the week for this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like great. Okay, again, this is not friendly house conversation. This is getting told off by your guest. Hypocrites, for you're like the graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. I remember being asked over to a couple's house and Steph and I are like oh we haven't seen these two for a long time this is gonna be so great we're gonna connect with them and rebuild that friendship and man this is awesome we go over to their house and they serve dinner and it was kind of fun how are you doing what are you doing catching up over the years and then they're like well you know we have another person who's coming over and the other person arrives at the door and they come in and they pull out a whiteboard and then they start telling us about Amway and we were just like Oh, the only reason you want us here is to sell us crap. It broke everything. It was like this wasn't a friendly get-together, kindred spirits, rebuilding relationship. We were on your list of people that you could sell crap to. If there's an Amway person here, I hope you don't do that. But it felt so betrayed. And Steph loves this story because I went off. I lost it. I was like, woe to you. Can I have that dry board marker? Sure. I went up there and they had all these circles of you connect all your friends and they even said, go through your wedding list. That's a great place to start for your sales. And they had all these little circles on the board and all I could see was that every little face circle had a dollar sign in it. So I went up and I started drawing dollar signs and I said, this is all you see because you're blind. And, and, and I'm devastated that the only thing you saw with me was a big dollar sign on my face. That's not friendship. That's not love. You're, you're getting greetings in the marketplaces and you're putting your trust in it. You're hypocrites. You're actors. You acted like a friend, but you're not. So the word hypocrite there in the Greek means to act, to be an actor. You are putting on a show and pretending to be somebody you're not. Jesus spent five chapters talking about how to live and how to live a life. This is one chapter on how not to live a life. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't fake don't pretend. Don't pretend that you're holy when what's going on is a purifying process. Just say, I'm, go I'm trying to clean up my life. Don't pretend that you're holy because you want to get along with other people at a church. Just be who you are and trust that we'll accept you as you are. Don't embrace your image. Don't let that be your light because it's actually darkness. Then he gives the example of graves. Graves which are not seen is horrifying to Pharisees. You know what they'd do? They'd go into graveyards and they would hire poor people to paint the graves white. They'd whitewash them. So when you see a Jewish graveyard, it's all white. And the reason for that is it's like when we put little warning stripes on a step, it was so that they didn't touch the grave. They wanted to make graves so seeable that you couldn't miss them a million miles away. And so they, because they believed if they touched a grave, they were unclean ceremonially. And the Bible says they would be. So that's true. 
But the problem is they would whitewash graves and then so that, that they never had to touch them. And, and the, the idea of a grave being buried and you walk over it and become defiled and you don't even know that you're defiled, that's what being a hypocrite is like. You're so worried about your image with other people, what you're good at, what you're not good at, that you're putting on an act and what's going on is you're, you're, the darkness is in you and you don't even see it. That's the darkness. You're, it's like walking on a grave that has rot inside of it and, and the grave under the ground has rot all around it and now you're, you're contaminated with that. Men who walk over them are ceremonially unclean. Again, Numbers 19 explains this. You, you're not supposed to go messing with dead things. So imagine the horror for a Pharisee of being unclean and not even knowing it. Take heed that the light that is in you is not darkness. Woe to you. Oh, and then, so here's the other thing. This is, I like this in verse 45 because this is lawyers, right? A good lawyer by disposition can't not jump into the argument. If you're a smart lawyer and you hear Jesus laying out the woes, shut up. Don't introduce yourself into the conversation, right? Verse 45, then one of the lawyers answered, so this is a response to the woes. And he said to him, teacher, by these sayings, you reproach us too. He takes offense when Jesus gives the woes to other people. All right, because they buy into the whole system. Even if they don't do it like Pharisees, they believe that the pharisaical system means something. So we should note that lawyers here are not like we see lawyers. They're not Roman. They're not civic. The lawyers in the context here are lawyers of the Old Testament law. They're the ones that have codified all these traditions and said that they mean something. So by accusing the Pharisees of, of hypo hypocrisy, they're saying, you're saying we're hypocrites too because we wrote all these rules. We, we manage them. Here's a rule. When Jesus is passing out warnings, it's best to stay quiet and not poke the bear. But Jesus is on a rant and, and instead of just keeping quiet, they jump right in. And so, verse 46, and he said, woe to you also, lawyers. And again, he's not talking about people who practice law in America today. He's talking about these pharisaic lawyers. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You make them up, the Pharisees do them, and you don't even have to live by them. Whoa. So they create hundreds of traditions that other people should follow. They literally are above the law as law experts. If the law should be defend the lowly, woe to this kind of thinking. If any part of you thinks that there's things you need to do or other people need to do that you don't hold yourself accountable to, um, diets, Sabbath practice, prayer, tithe practice, all these things we do around consecrating our lives are good things. But when we make little rules for ourselves and we say other people should do them, woe to that kind of thinking. Woe, because Jesus will direct you. I don't need another human to direct me. God will guide me. The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, those things will direct me. You know, and in that sense, you're like, like, it is holy to make good life decisions, to sanctify, to consecrate. Praise God for all of you that have made decisions around parts of your life you're going to give to God. Awesome. I encourage you. I admonish you. Do those things. But the second they become things where you start to think other people should do these other things you've thought of, 
you're living outside of God's expectations. And he lays that down. So you got all the woes so far? 47, here's another one. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, Second Chronicles 24, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Whoa. Uh, you know, if Jesus handing out the woes, I just quietly slip out the back door, right? You build the tombs of the prophets. This is a popular activity in the first century. They would take those whitewashed tombs and for special prophets, they'd make them into tourist sites. You guys, this hasn't changed one bit, right? The Taj Mahal is a, is a tomb. The tomb of Halicarnassus, one of the seven wonders of the world, right? We make tombs and we make them elaborate and bigger. The pyramids are tombs. And you take these dead prophets and then you make them lucrative activities where you come visit the, the, the tomb of Micah, the tomb of so-and-so. Um, they're rejecting now a living prophet and they're pretending to themselves that they're better than Jesus. And in doing that, they're doing exactly what the, the, the people in authority did to the prophets back in the day. So they're saying, reverent, reverent these, have reverence for these prophets. Have honor for these prophets. We're going to build up these tombs because they're, they're our heroes of our past. Yet they're doing the exact same thing that killed those prophets. It's arrogant to think we're better than our fathers and mothers. It's arrogant to think that generations past, they were dumb people. Yet there's a rise in this, rewriting history, to think that we're somehow better than those people in it. And he says, I will send them prophets and apostles. Well, prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus, and then apostles is what he says. He's going to send the church to these people. And we're supposed to follow Jesus in this. They're going to go forward and argue that they're breaking the law and that they're murdering, that they have Beelzebub in them, that they, are, that they need to put on more of a show. And, and in this arrogance, they're going to gather debt and guilt unto themselves. They're going to kill Jesus. He has set his face to, like flint in that direction. All may be required, required of this generation. This is an interesting thing Jesus says. If they aren't humble to repentance in the face of an incarnate Jesus, they're guilty of all of it. Jesus is going to cover the sins of the world, and if they reject that, they're accepting the sins of the world. They're saying it was all okay because they're not changing course. So with Jeremiah, nobody repented, right? Nobody did. Let's think about that. Would you have supported Jeremiah or would you have been one of the entirety of the nation that rejected him? Odds are, if you're a gambling person, everyone in this room would have rejected Jeremiah's teachings at the time that he did it. The only thing that's different between us and them is not us, it's the Holy Spirit in us opening our eyes to the light of Jesus Christ so that we can react differently than those people did. Not because we're better, but because we have the Holy Spirit in us, guiding us and helping us to see the light. That's it. 
We can't do it on our own account or on our own blessing. He says, yes, I say to you. Uh, don't miss the fact that he's not saying the word of God says anymore. He's saying, I say to you. I want to just, again, track this a little bit. Jesus is then prophesying right now, and he's condemning. And with that sentence, he is now judging them in his name. And so it's not a light thing when he says, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. He's actually taking on the role of God when he says that, as a prophet does. Only he's not saying the word of the Lord says that you will be condemned. He says, I say that you'll be condemned. When we get images of heaven, we see the Messiah sitting on the throne, acting as a judge of all nations. Jesus pulls it out and acts that way. So either you believe Jesus or with the phrase, yes, I say to you, you have to kill him as a blasphemer because he just claimed that he's the judge and nobody's the judge but God. So I feel a little sorry for them because they're gathering innocent blood in their inability to see Jesus Christ because of the sin that they're harboring in their heart that they won't let go. All those woes, liking to be famous, enjoying the money, liking the show of holiness, but being corrupt on the inside, they want all that stuff. And because they can't let it go, they can't see that Jesus is incarnate God, like his disciples can. 52, he pulls out another one. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, but those who were entering in, you hindered. You actually made it hard for people to see me. When you make an accusation of Beelzebub, that puts doubt in people's hearts. When you start complaining about um, a godly person that's sharing the word of God, and you start like questioning motives, boy, you better have reason to do that because you're otherwise hindering people from hearing the word of God from a godly person. Think about that woe, right? And this is like the church of the disgruntled, right? These lawyers have heard Jesus, but then they question Jesus. Wow, I don't know about this. and I don't know about that. And you got some people, they go into a church and it's just a matter of time before they find something to bicker about, something to complain about, something that's wrong. The music's bad. The teacher's boring. The Sunday school people don't have proper stamps that they put on kids' foreheads, so I know when, if it's my kid or not. You know, instead of just believing, they create barriers for other people to find joy in what they're doing. They're complainers. So how horrible this would be to have Jesus stack up all these woes directly and truthfully. They know these things are true. Jesus is speaking right to their heart. And in doing that, there should be a fear of God rising in them. Wow, this guy knows what's actually in my heart. I have such a good front. I'm such a good hypocrite, a good actor. How does this guy know that that's what's in my heart? Yeah, he goes right at it. He targets it because I think in a good and godly way, he shines light on the sin so it can't exist in the darkness anymore. Sin loves the darkness. Gossip loves the darkness. Pride loves to be hidden. All these horrible things love to be out there and tucked away. And then they don't enter. I think Jesus is trying to, in the woes, he's actually trying to appeal to them which is where I lean towards a tone of like disappointment and that as he lays these woes out, as he brings the sin into the light, they actually have a chance to repent of it. He's named it and they can, it would devastate me if Jesus said, here's the darkness in your heart, Sean, woe to you, watch out, pay attention. 
This is what's wrong with you. I'd be so broken. Lord, get rid of all of it. I don't want anything to hinder me from coming into your kingdom. Revealing me anything that's wrong, anything that's dark, because I only want what's in me to be light. So how would you respond if Jesus showed up and woed and he told you exactly what you've been hiding in your heart? He knew exactly what was going on. And I'm going to say that's not a what if. God reads the hearts of mankind. What you think is secret to you, God knows it. And he lays it on you. And he says, don't harbor that. Don't hide it. Put it out in the open. Get it to be known. Because before God, nothing is hidden. All eyes shall see. All ears shall hear. There's nothing you do in secret places that won't be brought into the light. Woe to you. What about the entire practice of religion? What if Jesus showed up and he didn't like anything we did or any of the ways we did it? Would we repent and change? Would we just say, yeah, we'll dump it all. In the name of Jesus, we want to be closer to God. We're not holding tight to any of these things. All we hold tight to is Jesus because we set our face like flint on Jesus Christ. Verse 53, and he said these things to them. The scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently. That shows you their reaction. And to cross-examine him about many things, probably the lawyers. This Verse 54, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. They're trying to get him now. There's full-on battle. Luke's built up to this over time, but here we are. There is a frothing fury in the words, vehement. An uncontrolled disdain and an open resentment. When you bring people face-to-face with their sin... They're either going to say, thank you, or I hate your guts. Get out of my life. I want nothing to do with you. When you point out sin to people, watch out, because this is what happens. And Jesus says to follow him. Follow him in this. If you've got people coming up against Christianity to go right at their hearts. Don't argue their point. Go right at their heart. Here's the sin you got. Here's the thing you have to deal with. Greed, lust, pride. One of those three is probably it. They would have loved to covertly hated Jesus. They would have loved to hate him in their hearts, but he brought it all into the open. Now there's a clear decision to make for everybody involved. There are multitudes following Jesus, and now they know Jesus does not like the Pharisees. He is not okay with what they're doing. He may love them and want them to repent, but he has drawn a clear line between right and wrong. And that is, there's a moment here that's happening. Jesus brings truth into the relationship. There's no hiding with him. Sadly, they don't respond to the rebuke. They're like Cain, Lot, Laban, Pharaoh, Ahab. They reject what they're told. And they just keep rolling in their sin. So like them, there is a curse in that. There is a hell and a damnation that comes with rejecting God. So instead of sorrow and devastation, they, they have a sense of failure. They are, they're not aching for God's forgiveness. Instead of that reaction, they choose pride. And they just want to get rid of the thing speaking the truth. And I think at this point, for a blind person, Jesus is no longer a human being. He's a thing. I think he's just an obstacle at this point to them. They dehumanize when they do this. And in dehumanizing Jesus, they can do whatever they want to Jesus. They can assail him vehemently because he's no longer a person worthy of truth, grace, correction, reproof. Pharisees are teachers. They're supposed to teach people that have mistaken ideas. They don't want to teach Jesus because they realize where the authority is in the room. They just want to get rid of Jesus. 
Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. Whoever hates correction is stupid. That's the word, like good translation in the English. Let's be clear. When somebody loves you and corrects you in the word, to hate that person is just stupid. Think to yourself, does this person have any reason to give me bad advice? They've loved me. They've cared for me. They're in my life. They're a friend. I care about them and they're bringing me correction. Is there any motivation for them to deceive you in that? If that's not the case, like why are you rejecting them? What's going on in your heart? They cross-examine. They want to argue with them. They lie in wait for him. They want to find fault to seek and catch him in something. They want to twist his words. They want to ignore the heart and try to just get him on minor things. This also fulfills a prophecy. It happens to be in Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 30. In vain I've chastened your children and they receive no correction. This is exactly what happens with Jesus so that they might accuse him. This means they're not going to invite Jesus over to dinner again. Like that part of the, that pretend is gone. He dared to ask, he dared to question their holy self-righteousness and their integrity. And you can't question people's integrity when they're self-righteous. They will just hate you. They will red-faced hate you. He dared not to care about their burdens, their rituals, their show, their political positions. He doesn't care about any of that. How dare he not care about what they care about? The heavenly perspective is Jesus is the almighty God. Why should he give two cents about what they think? The earthly perspective is he's a carpenter's son. Why in the world is he not bowing to human authority? How dare he? And the question for us is which perspective do we have of Jesus? Is he the almighty God on earth? Or is he some guy that had the arrogant attitude to stand against the Pharisees that deserved what he got? So next up, Jesus is going to use this to teach his disciples. And he's going to turn around and say, see, look at this. I just want to read the first couple of verses of the next chapter so that we don't miss this connection next week. He returns back to the idea of lighting a lamp in verse 33. This is all about the light and the darkness in your heart. And he bookends the woes by coming right back to it. In the meantime, when the innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, again, this is something that he's showing everybody that there is a difference between him and the Pharisees. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing covered that won't be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you've spoken in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed to the tops. Don't think that what's in you can be hidden. It's either light or dark, and it will be revealed. Brothers and sisters, don't hate me. I'm just the messenger reading you the woes. But if there's something dark in your heart, let's pray about it. Let's repent of it. God knows your reaction to that darkness is either to embrace it and try to keep it or to say, Lord, with everything in me, help me get rid of it. And I just pray that there's nobody in my circle of friends or family that wants to hold on to that darkness. Get rid of it because I want to hang out for all of eternity with you guys. I don't want to ever have that friendship end that family, your brothers and sisters, and we all need to go there together, which means you have to reject the darkness and get rid of it. And don't want it. Don't pine for it. Just throw it as far as you can. God's willing to do it. He'll throw it as far as the east is from the west. All you got to do is ask. Lord, far from me would it be to, to do anything that would hurt our relationship with each other.
So that's what we pray for. Take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness, that the thing you're living for isn't a dark thing. The thing you're living for isn't a selfish thing. The thing you're living for is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He's the way, the truth, the life, no exceptions. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word that you have taught us, that you've shown us. Lord, even in the negative, you've, you've shown the woes, the things to watch out for. Um, that Lord, as we walk in faith, there is a temptation to pretend we're holy. There's a temptation to like what it feels like to be a churchy person, to like what it feels like to have titles, to have opportunities to serve the body, that we take that as something that is unique to us. But Lord, there's a special condemnation with that. There's a special guilt that you've defined that we need to watch out for and take heed for. And there's a woe that comes with those people that are within the church acting in ways that are to celebrate themselves instead of giving glory to you. So Lord, may we be humble. May we be broken before you. Lord, may our hearts pine for nothing that's dark, but only the things that are light. Lord, may we be good hosts. May we let go of our own traditions and practices and religions when it comes to welcoming somebody into our lives. Lord, everyone we encounter is an opportunity to show light. So Lord, may your word shine through us so that other people can hear your word. And may we do it without any sense of pride or gathering pride unto ourselves. Lord, I pray for the joy of fellowship. I pray for the meal we're about to eat, the feast we're about to have. Lord, I love the food that you bring into the practice of um, gathering with other believers. And Lord, we just pray for that time. May your fellowship be sweet. I pray for the hiking trips that are coming down the road. And I just pray people would be willing to go off and, and spend some afternoons together. And Lord, we just pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.